Let's pray. Father, we want to come now and we want to tremble before your word. Thank you that you are the God who has spoken and the God who speaks powerfully through your word. Lord, this is a holy moment for us and we want to be aware, Lord, of the holy moments happening all over this world today as your people everywhere gather and what we pray for ourselves, Lord, we pray for your people wherever they're gathering, that your word would be powerful, that your spirit would empower preachers of your word and would empower the receivers of your word. And so, Lord, we ask that for us here, that your Holy Spirit would not leave us alone to hear words, but that your Holy Spirit would empower us to hear your words and that your words would be powerful in our hearts to change our affections, to change our thinking, to, to point us, to cause us to turn again and again back to you. Oh Lord, how quickly we turn away from you. And would you use your word this morning to, to cause us yet again to turn back to you, to find our home in your heart. Oh Lord, you love your people. And so, Lord, because you love us, would you speak now through your word? And I ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please have a seat. Um, as, as we get uh, our small group started again with this new series, you'll notice on the back of, your, of the outline in your, in your um, bulletin, there's some study questions. Those are the questions that the small groups work through. Um, if you want a bigger copy of that, full-size copies, uh, we're going to be printing off, and they're going to be out in, in one of the literature stands in the, in the foyer there. So if, if you want a little bit more space, a little bit bigger text, there's going to be a few out there. That you can that you can take, uh, and we'll have a few of those available each Sunday. Let's start this morning by asking a question that uh, we obviously can't all answer out loud, but I'd like you to think about your answer. Where is your home? It's an interesting idea, right? When when you even think of home, what do you think of? Do you think of a town? A particular area, a particular house, a group of people. It can be complicated, right? Like some of you, I, I've had a fairly complicated relationship with home in my life. I've moved around a lot. I actually counted yesterday. If my count is right, I've moved 20 times. And so that's an average of more than, more than twice every, or more than once every two years. Uh, my fourth move was when I was five years old and we moved out to Saskatchewan from Ontario. That was back, um, that was back when, when people would say, why'd you move to Saskatchewan? And I've spent though most of my life in this great province. And I've, I've told people for, for many years that, that Saskatchewan feels like home. I had an interesting experience about three years ago, though. I went back to Ontario to visit my dad, uh, who I hadn't seen in 20 years, and that's a whole other story. It was October, though, and, and, and I flew into Toronto where I got a rental car and spent a few hours driving through Ontario up to the Ottawa Valley where my dad was living, and I, I forgot how much I missed Ontario. There was something about the orange and red of, of the maples turning color everywhere, the little winding roads with little towns and little bodies of water and bridges everywhere. I mean, it felt familiar in a way that I, I, I kind of wasn't expecting. And in some, in some sense, I, I felt like I'd gone home. But then that weekend, I came back to Saskatchewan, and on Sunday morning, I gathered together with you, my church community, in the gym at Nippon Bible College. Sorry, it's not the most homey environment. But walking through those doors, I felt home. Because I was with my family, my church family. And, and I found that being with you, I know this sounds sappy, but it's true. It gave me a greater sense of home than any Ontario maple trees had been able to conjure up. So, so where is home? 
It's not so straightforward, is it? First Peter is a letter written to a group of Christians who had a very complicated and challenging relationship with the idea of home. Peter wrote this letter from Rome. We're going to find that out at the end of the letter. Peter wrote this from Rome. That was far from his hometown of Capernaum. And he wrote this to a group of people spread around some of the most remote provinces in the Roman Empire. Now, we know that during this time period from history, we know that there were a number of of migrations of, of people from Rome to these areas. So Rome was trying to build up these colonies. Now, we also know that Jews and quite possibly Christians were forced out of Rome during this time period because their religious beliefs were upsetting the balance and upsetting the order. And so it's quite possible that what's going on here is that when he was in Rome, Peter had gotten to know these Christians and they were forced out for their beliefs. And so now as they're literally strangers in a strange land, Peter writes to connect with them, to encourage them. Whether that's the case or not, 1 Peter is addressed to a group of people who felt like strangers in this world because of their beliefs, their practices, their values. And they were so different from all the people around them. As we think about what 1 Peter says about strangers and aliens, it all works just as well if these people were born in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. By the way, good job pronouncing those words as we read that scripture together. But but 1 Peter works just as well if these people were born there. It was their faithfulness to Jesus, as we're going to see today and as we're going to see throughout this letter, it was their faithfulness to Jesus that made them outsiders. And so Peter writes to encourage them to orient their hearts in the right direction, to ground them in the truth, and to give them a sense of their real identity and where they really belong. He writes to help them, as I've summed it up, to thrive in exile. I'm really thrilled to be starting this series together. I've, I've spent some time teaching First Peter in the past, about a decade ago. I got to do a Sunday school class a few years ago. Some of the young adults here remember we studied First Peter together for, for a few months. Uh, we, I don't think we got through the first two chapters in our year together because uh, it is such a, a rich book. It's such a rich letter. There's so much here. Uh, sometimes Peter's letters get overshadowed by Paul's, but we're going to see here that, that, that Peter's is, is just a rich author. There's so much here, and I can't wait to explore this with you in the months ahead. And what we're going to see is that today we're just looking at the introduction to this letter. And, and, and what this introduction does is in some ways it gives us an appetizer, a picture of, of the rest of the letter. So the themes that Peter takes up in these first two verses are like a little, again, like kind of like a movie trailer of, the, of, the, of all the things that we're going to be exploring in the coming months. This series is going to take us up to early February is the plan. And here we are at the beginning and let's dive in. Let's consider, let's consider the very first words in this letter. First Peter is a letter. It's written like most letters in the Roman era. Uh, It starts rather by introducing its author. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This letter was written by Simon Peter. And most people throughout history accepted that at face value. In the early church, I mean, those are the people closest to when this was actually written. There was no question that Peter actually wrote this. Now, of course, in the last couple hundred years, some scholars got way smarter than anybody else who ever lived before them and began to doubt that Simon Peter actually wrote this letter. Now, the main reason why people doubt that Peter actually wrote this letter is that it's so well written. In the Greek language, it's just elegantly written. And people will say, there's no way a fisherman from Galilee could have written this. Isn't that, though, kind of the point? Do you remember Acts 4.13? Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized they had been with Jesus. Isn't it kind of the point that Jesus transforms a, 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 a rash Galilean fisherman into a powerful leader in the church who you know preaches a sermon like he does in Acts chapter 2 and just makes us go, Wow. 
Not to mention, probably 30 years had gone by. Peter writes this letter probably 30 years after his internship with Jesus. It's also helpful to remember that, that most letters in the Roman era were written through a secretary. Actually, Peter talks about that again towards the end of the letter. And that, that would have had an impact on the, on the word choice and how it was written. But we have every reason to have confidence that what we're reading here is a letter written by Simon Peter, the man who first confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the man who got out of the boat to walk on water, the man who felt Jesus' hand grab his when he started to sink, the man who ran to the empty tomb, the man who stood up to preach on Pentecost, the man whom the Holy Spirit over, over three decades had transformed from a quick-tempered loudmouth into a mature, stable leader in the church. And this was a man who was commissioned to be one of Jesus' apostles. That's how Peter introduces himself, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, and they were sent as one of Jesus' official messengers, official representatives. I was just reading about the the G20 summit that just happened and all the leaders. And there were a couple of leaders who didn't show up. So they sent representatives who went there to speak for them. And that's like what an apostle was. They spoke for Jesus. They spoke on Jesus's behalf. They spoke with Jesus's authority and with the special help of the Holy Spirit. So that's what 1 Peter is. 1 Peter is a letter written by this apostle on behalf of the risen Jesus. So we should listen up. And we should receive this with gladness. Now let's look at the recipients. Who's this letter written to? Peter begins by referring to his readers as those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These areas he lists, if you look at them on a, on a, on a, on a Bible atlas, some of you might have maps in the back of your Bible, these, are, are from, th- these areas were in some of the most remote areas of the Roman Empire. Towards the north of what's today Turkey, south of the Black Sea. And like we've already discussed, this was not the home and native land for the people that, that Peter writes to. He calls them exiles. That's a word that can mean foreigners or sojourners. In the Greek Old Testament, Abraham uses this word when he was buying the land from, for Sarah's tomb, which we, we studied just a few months ago. He said, I'm a sojourner among you. It's that same word. I'm not from here. I'm living as a stranger among people who aren't my own. During Peter's time, in the political world, this word was used to talk about someone who lived in a place where they weren't a citizen. That's true for some of you in literal places. You're in Canada here, and, and, and this is not the country of your citizenship. That's, this word was used to describe someone like that. They were from somewhere else. And very often, because they were from somewhere else, where, where they lived, they were viewed as an outsider. They often followed different customs, different beliefs than the people around them. And they were on the outside. Peter calls them exiles of the dispersion. This word dispersion has the sense of scattering. You notice it's got a capital D. If you look in the ESV text, it's got a capital D. That's because this was a very specific word that was used in Jewish writing to talk about the Jews who had been scattered after the Babylonians invaded their land. So we remember that at kind of the, 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 one of the big events in, in Old Testament history is when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem and the Jewish people were scattered, dispersed. And the word, the dispersion, or you maybe have heard the word diaspora from the same word. These Jews were spread everywhere. And that, that's what this word was used for. Now it's very interesting because Peter calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. Some people think, well, he's writing to Jews who were part of that dispersion. They think that Peter's writing to Jewish people who had been thrown out of the land when Babylon invaded. And now after a few centuries, right, this is like uh, almost 600 years later, 
they're living in these different places, but they're, they're still outsiders. They're still part of the dispersion. But what's interesting, what's really interesting, is that there's some verses in 1 Peter that, that are very, very uh, big hints that Peter's not writing to Jews at all. He's writing to Gentiles. Here's one of them. Down in verse 18 of chapter 1, he says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Peter would not say that to Jews. He would not say that, that what their forefathers did was, was futile. I mean, especially because Peter quotes from the Old Testament all the time. And if that doesn't make sense, you don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. But what I'm just showing you is there's some big clues. Peter's not writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. So what, what's going on when he calls them exiles of the dispersion? If, if that word dispersion was talking about Jews who had been scattered. Well, here's what's going on. He's helping these Gentiles understand their status. Right? When the Babylonians invaded, the Jews were scattered. And for centuries, the Jews lived as strangers, far from their home. But the Jews continued to have distinctive practices, distinctive beliefs, even distinctive diet that made them stick out. They, they never fully blended in with the people around them. They always were different. And even after they had lived in a place for some time, they always still longed for their homeland. You've heard the phrase, next year in Jerusalem, right? When they would celebrate the Passover. Next year, maybe, in Jerusalem. They were different, and they longed for their home. And Peter's saying that these Christians he's writing to, they're having the same experience. Whether these Christians came from Rome and moved to these areas, or maybe were just born there, they stuck out. They were different. They belonged to God, and the people around them were hostile to God. And Peter uses these words, exiles of the dispersion, to, to basically write these people into the story of God's people. He's showing them, you are a part of a long line of exiles. You're not the first people to have this experience. He, that's what Peter's saying to them. You're not the first people whose faith in God makes you feel like a stranger. This, is, this, this goes back hundreds of years, is what he's saying. How much more us, right? Which we're going to see. This goes back a long way. You are a part of a long line of people whose faith has made you strangers, whose walk with God has made you never quite fit in, who have never stopped longing for your real home, your real homeland. So, Peter calls them exiles of the dispersion. That's not the only thing he calls them, though, right? What's he also call them? He calls them elect exiles. Elect just means chosen. In Canada, we have elections where we choose our leaders. But in the kingdom of God... The citizens don't elect their leader. Rather, the leader elects the citizens. God's people are God's people because they've been chosen by God. They're his elect, his chosen. Now, isn't that kind of strange? Just think about everything we just heard about this word exile, outsider, a stranger, a foreigner. But Peter says, you are elect Exiles, chosen strangers. That's kind of kind of interesting, isn't it? Sam Storms put it this way. He says, To be an exile is to be rejected. To be elect is to be selected. But there is no contradiction here. God's people, listen to this. This is, I'm still quoting him here. God's people are rejected by this world precisely because they have been elected by God. That's the whole point here, right? What makes us strangers on earth is that God has chosen us to be his. 
What, is, what does that mean, though? What does it mean to be chosen by God? How does it happen? What's the purpose? What's going on with this idea of God choosing us? Well, that's what verse 2 is about. In verse 2, we find three phrases. Each of these phrases is connected in, in just the way the words work in the grammar. Each of these phrases is connected to the word elect or chosen. Each of these phrases in verse 2 is helping us understand what does it mean to be chosen by God. So let's, let's look at each of these phrases in turn. First, as we look at verse 2, Peter says that, that his readers were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What's the, what's the basis for their being chosen? What's well, the foreknowledge of the Father? Foreknowledge has the basic meaning of knowing something ahead of time. Knowing ahead of time. And so some people think that's just what this means. What this means is that God knew ahead of time some things like who would believe in him. And so then he saw who would believe in him and then he chose them. But it's very interesting that if we look at how this word is used in the New Testament... The idea of foreknowledge is is usually much more personal. In other words, it's not so much that God knows things ahead of time. It's that God knows people ahead of time. That's how this this word is used in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 29, chapter 11, verse 2. When Paul uses this word, it talks about God knowing people. Not just things about them, but knowing them. That's how Peter uses this word down in verse 20 of this chapter. He says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God didn't just know things about Jesus. He he knew his son. See, the background for this is the Hebrew Bible where the word know, know, K-N-O-W, carries a very often a very personal meaning. Think of when it says Adam knew his wife Eve. It means more than he got to know her over coffee. It's talking about a very personal, intimate connection. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God says to Israel, listen to this, God says to Israel, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. God knows everything, right? So he's not saying that he didn't know anything about anybody else. But when he says to Israel, you only have I known, what he's saying is that I've chosen to know you in a special and a close way. I have a close relationship with you. So that's the sense that we should get here. In 1 Peter, it's not so much that God just knew some things about people, like whether they would choose him or not. The sense here is that God's people were chosen because before time began, God knew them and chose to set his special love on them before we even existed. God established a relationship between himself and his people before the world had ever been formed. Isn't isn't that a comforting thought? See, many of us humans, in fact, I can safely say all of us humans, have in ourselves two deep longings. We long to be known. We want to be known by people. We want people to know us. And we long to be loved. And sometimes those two desires, they kind of fight with each other. Because many of us know the fear that if people really knew us, then maybe they wouldn't love us. And so that's why we often put on a front. We, we act, we play a part, we, we make ourselves look a certain way so that people won't really know us because maybe then they'll love us. But think of what this is telling us about God, that he knew his people 
before they'd ever done anything. And he knew them and he knew everything about them. And he chose to set his love on them. He chose to know them truly and deeply and to love them completely and eternally. If you know God, if you've been saved by Jesus, he chose to set his love on you, to enter into an eternal relationship with you before the first star shone in the sky. You are known and you are loved. And so think of the comfort here. Peter's readers are on the outside. They feel like strangers. And Peter reminds them, the Father chose you. The Father knows you. The Father loves you. Known fully, loved completely. That's the first phrase in chapter 2, or sorry, in verse 2. We were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Second phrase is that God's people were chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. You can see why we're only looking at two verses here today, right? There's some big words here. We want to we understand them. Sanctification or sanctify means to be made holy. In other words, to be devoted to God. To be devoted to God. Think of the example of a, of a football game and you have a, a, a game ball that's been devoted to that game. No one else gets to touch it and play with it. It's been set aside for a purpose. That's kind of what it means to be holy, to be sanctified, devoted to God. And as God's people were chosen by him, it was the Holy Spirit who marked those people out as being devoted to God. Now, is this talking about something that the Spirit did in eternity past? We're not sure. But we do know that at the moment when someone is brought to faith in Jesus, what, what even makes that faith possible is the work of the Spirit. And as the Spirit is given to them, the Spirit becomes the thing that marks us out as, as different from everybody else. This Holy Spirit is what causes our hearts to want to obey God begins to change our our behavior and our thinking so that we do what God wants. The Holy Spirit causes us to be devoted to God. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And that's very much what Peter's talking about here. The Father knew us The Spirit marks us out and causes us to be devoted to God, to be holy. Now finally, in a third, what's the goal of all this? What's the goal of God choosing us, knowing us, marking us out as holy? Well, the third phrase here in verse 2, it says Christians were chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So that word for there is really important. This is the goal. This is what God chose his people for. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now you might wonder what's going on with this idea of obedience and sprinkling with his blood. What's going on there? The, the, the original language here, remember the New Testament's written in Greek, the original language is actually kind of hard to translate. And this is a case where actually the King James or the New King James is, is actually a little closer to the original. The New King James says that we were chosen for, listen to this, obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And some of you right now are thinking that doesn't help at all. This is strange language, right? But here's what's going on. Here's why we need to see that connection of obedience and sprinkling. This is pointing us back to another place in the Bible. Anytime you see something strange in the Bible, a great question to ask is, where do we see this before, like in the Bible? Where do we see this? And this idea of obedience and sprinkling brings us back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Exodus happens, Exodus chapter 24 happens at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has just gone up. He's received the Ten Commandments. He's received the first bit of teaching from God. So Moses is just getting the first little bit 
of God's instruction for his people. And in Exodus 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do, or we will obey. And then in verse 5, if you're, if you're there, Exodus 24, verse 5. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Okay, so they're killing these animals, burning part of their bodies. And when they would kill the animals, they would collect the blood. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. Now the book of the covenant is, is what God had just told him. It included what we call the Ten Commandments. It included some more instruction from God. And he read it in the hearing of the people. So he tells them, this is what God expects of you. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Okay, so get, the, get this. Moses reads them God's law. He reads in the Ten Commandments. And they say, we'll do it. We'll be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it or sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. You see, obedience and sprinkling. And this is now the people of Israel coming into a covenant relationship with God. They hear God's word. They say, yes, we'll obey. And they're sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice that purifies them and makes it possible for them to come into this relationship with God. This is the picture that Peter's pointing to here in 1 Peter 1-2 as he talks about us being brought into a new covenant with Jesus. A new covenant that is so much better. Right? In the first covenant, Israel heard God's law and they said, yeah, we'll obey it. How did that go for them? Right? We know not, not very well at all. In the new covenant, God writes his law on our hearts. He gives us the Holy Spirit so that we actually want to obey him and we actually can, not, not perfectly, but truly. And so we pledge to obey Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And just like Israel was sprinkled with the blood of oxen and animals, you and I are cleansed with the blood of a perfect sacrifice, Jesus himself, who sealed the new covenant in his blood when he died for our sins on the cross. And his death actually deals with sins once and for all. In the old covenant, all those animals need to keep on being killed. In the new covenant, Jesus' death on the cross once and for all has made God's people perfect. And so Peter uses these words, obedience and sprinkling, to point to this new and better covenant that we've come into through faith in Jesus. A covenant where our sins are forgiven and a covenant where God, or where Jesus receives our obedience, spirit-empowered obedience. So just think about this for a moment. In the, in the last few decades, some Christians have talked a lot about having a personal relationship with Jesus. That's actually good language if we understand it properly. But still, I wonder how many Christians would describe themselves as being in a covenant relationship with Jesus. But here's what's interesting is that's what Peter's pointing to here. He's telling these Christians, you have been brought through the blood of Jesus into a covenant relationship with him. A covenant relationship with God's son. And don't miss that a part of our covenant relationship with Jesus is obedience. This is an idea that makes a lot of churchgoers nervous, isn't it? Here's an experiment for you. If you're with a group of Christians, start talking about obedience and start a stopwatch 
and just wait how long it is until someone says, well, you don't, you know, we don't want to be legalistic, you know, right? Just time, the, the, the space between you saying obedience and someone saying legalism. And report back. I'd love to hear. It's, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but kind of not really, right? Obedience makes a lot of Christians really nervous. Well, we don't want to get legalistic, you know. Obedience is not about legalism. Whatever that means. I mean, legalism is not a word that's in the Bible. You know, people say we don't want to be legalistic and everyone nods. I just kind of want to know, like, what do you mean by legalism? Because that's not a word that's in the Bible. So what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean earning your salvation? Do you mean making up new rules that aren't in the Bible? Well, okay, yeah, those aren't good things. But for some people, they, they think obedience is legalism. Obedience is not legalism. Obedience is what we do when we love Jesus. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. When people love Jesus, they do what he says. Jesus is Lord. A Lord is someone who tells you what to do and and you do it. Do you know that the Apostle Paul uses the word obedience in his writings? It's all over the place. In the book of Romans, okay, Romans is all about salvation by grace through faith. Praise God. And here's what he says, Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's a Christian. Someone who the Holy Spirit has caused to be obedient from the heart to the teaching of Jesus' apostles. So whatever the word legalism means, it's not what obedience is. Obeying Jesus is what Christians do because that's what the Holy Spirit causes us to do. Now, there's a lot more we could say about this. And, and, and actually, Peter uses this word obedient or obedience two more times in chapter one. So we're going to come back to this idea. We're going to see where does obedience comes from, come from. How is, how is obedience produced? What's the connection between obedience and faith, obedience and love? Here's what we can say. Obedience isn't something we need to be afraid of. Obedience isn't something we do to get God to choose us or save us. No, what have we seen here? God chose to set his love on us before the first star shone in the sky. And he saves us. And we know we're going to hear we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But part of God's purpose in saving us is that we would be obedient to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we think of what he said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's, that's, that's what he wants. So, we've been chosen according to the Father's foreknowledge in the sanctifying work of the Spirit for sprinkling and obedience to Jesus Christ. Do you see a pattern there in those three phrases? Who are the, who are the main people in each of those three phrases? There's the Father, There's the Spirit, and there's the Son. Do you see the Trinity here? Father, Spirit, and Son working together to save God's people and to bring them to himself. There's so much more. Uh, There's so much more here. But remember, these two verses are just an appetizer. There's a lot more coming. There's a feast that's coming. Let's just wrap up verse 2 here with Peter's greeting. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace are the greatest blessings of the gospel. God's grace means that we have peace with him. And Peter wants grace and peace to grow, to be multiplied. And so he writes this prayer, this blessing. It's actually interesting to think about the fact that his letter actually becomes a channel of God's grace. Through reading Peter's letter, we can experience God's grace and therefore God's peace in a fresh way. So let's review what we've seen today. We've seen Peter. Let's go back to the top. Peter, an apostle, a spokesman for Jesus. And he writes to this group of Christians way out in the boonies of the Roman Empire. They'd been chosen by God according to his foreknowledge in the Spirit's work for a covenant relationship with Jesus. 
And because of this, because they were faithful to Jesus, they found themselves on the outside of their society. Their faith had made them strangers and exiles. But like we're going to see in the weeks ahead, they had a home. They had a home in the heart of the Father. Their status of stranger was not permanent. And in the grace and love of the Lord, they could thrive in exile while they waited for their real home. So, let's end this morning by just considering what Peter's greeting, and I know we've only looked at the greeting, but what what does Peter's greeting have to say to you and I? Well, it shouldn't be too hard, right? You and I are in basically the same spot as Peter's readers. It's been a few centuries, but you and I are still in the same spot. We're New Covenant believers whose faith in Jesus has put us on the outside of society. So I want to start here with an encouragement to find our identity in God. And and, and let's just say this. Being a Christian is a strange thing these days, isn't it? And when I say be a Christian, I don't mean someone who just says, oh yeah, I, I like Jesus. Lots of people can say that. I mean a Christian who actually wants to obey Jesus on everything that his word says including what, he, what God's word says about marriage and sexuality and money and possessions and heaven and hell and faith and obedience and, and everything else that modern people get offended by. We've seen again and again, it doesn't matter how far in you are in our culture, in our society. It doesn't matter how, how connected you are If you just start being a consistent Christian, you're going to become an outsider. Whether that's an outsider in your town, your neighborhood, your workplace, your family, sadly, sometimes even in your church. I was just talking to someone a week ago from another town, and just their desire to to do what their Lord and Savior has told them to do has made them an outsider in their church. And for all the times that we feel like outsiders, that we feel like strangers, that we feel like foreigners, that we feel like exiles with our neighbors, our peers, our co-workers, our family, I pray that these words from 1 Peter are an encouragement to, to you this morning. Yes, you might feel like a stranger in a strange land, but take heart because that's not actually who you really are. Your identity, who you are, is not what the people in the break room whisper about you after you've left. It's not what your family says about you on the group chat after you've removed yourself from it. Your identity is not what the gossip grapevine around town says about you. Your identity is rooted in what the triune God has done to save you. That's who you are. And notice fundamentally that the core thing that Peter draws attention to here is that you were chosen some of us know what it's like to be picked for other things. I was, you know, when you get picked to be on a team or picked to give a presentation in school or something, we've been chosen by God to have his love set on us. You are an elect exile, chosen by the Father, marked out by the Spirit, drawn into relationship with Jesus. That's who you are. So again, Sam Storms, he writes... God wants us to know that none of the hardships or disappointments we face as exiles in the earth are a surprise to him. Dwell on this majestic truth. Let it sink deeply into your soul. God has chosen you. The Spirit has set you apart for his unique and beloved possession. And your life has been designed for obedience to Jesus. (coughs) Do you think that this truth can encourage you when you feel like there's no safe place for you? Maybe sometimes when even your home feels like a strange place. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Chosen and beloved. Known. You have a father. You have a homeland. And every day is one day closer to that homeland. And the strength that comes to our souls when we remember that, 
I have a father. I have a homeland. I'm one day closer. And First Peter is going to help us soak in these truths, marinate our souls in them. I want to just encourage you with one practical thing that you can do in, to prepare for this journey together through First Peter as we soak in these truths that we've heard from this morning. Just read through First Peter in its entirety. It, it'll take probably about 15 minutes, maybe 20, not very long. Read it through. Why not read it through a few times? Make some notes about the stuff that you don't understand. If you read it carefully, there should be some things you don't understand. Like there's some stuff in chapter three there that's just like, what in the world? And we're going we're gonna to get into it together. But the, the result of our study in First Peter, I pray, is an encouragement to us that we're known and loved by the God who chose us. And though we are strangers, we're actually not. We belong and we're headed for our home. Now, we could end there, and a part of me just wants to end with the encouragement. But as I pondered this passage this week, and as, as I engaged in some conversations with others, I couldn't help but, but recognize that on the flip side of this encouragement, there is a challenge. The challenge is to truly embrace our status as exiles and to not run from it. Every day, it seems like you hear about some other Christian leader or some Christian recording artist or some other prominent Christian who has caved into the pressure of our society and has stopped being faithful to Jesus. Being in exile was too hard, too lonely. So they forgot who they were, or at least who they said they were. They cared more about what the world thinks than what God thinks. They wanted to be on the inside of the world. They wanted to get in the inner circle with the cool kids. And so they started to be obedient to what our culture demands instead of obedient to the risen Lord Jesus. Remember 2 Timothy 4.10 for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It makes me so sad when we see this happening. And sometimes this happens when someone stops calling themselves a Christian altogether. They, they, being in exile is too hard, too lonely. And so they just walk away from Jesus altogether. But what's even sadder to me is when someone stops being in exile while still calling themselves a Christian. It scares me to think of how many people around the world today, even in our own country and province, are in church, singing the songs, looking like Christians on the surface. But if you poke that very thin shell, you'll find that underneath are all the same values, beliefs, and often even practices that the world holds to. They're not exiles. They're very much at home in this world, in the way our world thinks, the way our world feels, the things our world values. They've just smeared a little bit of Jesus on top. And church is just another cozy place for them to be with their friends. And I'm not just talking about liberals in Ontario. I'm also talking about conservatives in Saskatchewan whose worldview, the way they look at the world, what they, what they think is important and valuable, their worldview has more in common with their buddies on Coffee Row than with the new believer in church who came from another country or even from another part of our own country. So yes, I'm trying to make sure that the... the, the Sword of God's word cuts both directions here. The language of elect exiles is a challenge to progressive Christians who are selling out to the left-wing agenda. And the language of elect exiles is a challenge to conservative Christians who can't tell the difference between the right-wing agenda and the gospel of Christ Jesus crucified. See, the question for all of us is, do you really feel like a stranger in this world? Would you still feel like a stranger if the people that you vote for won the next election and kept all of their campaign promises? And I'm not saying that wouldn't be a good thing. In fact, it might be a wonderful thing. 
But if the conservatives win the next election, would you still feel like you're not home yet? Would you still find yourself longing for a better country, a heavenly city whose designer and builder is God? That's a challenge. But it sharpens us, and it brings the issues into focus. And I want to return here to the encouragement because I know that I'm talking to a whole group of people here who, by and large, know that they're exiles and who are longing for a better country. Not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. And my prayer is that in this series, in First Peter, you're going to be encouraged to thrive in exile. Start this week by hearing verse 1 and 2. Remember who you are. Remember the love of your Father. Remember that you're God's chosen one in an eternal relationship who has chosen to set his love on you before the first star shone. Walk then in the holiness of the Spirit in obedience to Jesus, cleansed by his blood, as each day this week you take a step closer to your real home. Father in heaven, Remind us this morning that we're exiles. Father, if there's anyone here who has not yet begun their pilgrimage, would you cause them, Lord, to believe in you? Would you cause them to believe your promise that all who believe will be saved? Would you draw them to yourself? And Lord, together, Would you cause us to walk a journey of faithful pilgrimage, strangers in a strange land, but who know our Father, who know our home, and who are getting there one day at a time. Oh, Jesus, come soon, please. Come make all things new. Help us to be faithful exiles, to thrive as strangers until that day comes. I pray this for Jesus' sake. Oh, keep our eyes on you, O Lord. Amen.